You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. And this is The Fabulous Invalid. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Well, the girls are, are away. Leslie is wrapping up uh, previews on, uh, well, by the time this airs, they will be, they will have opened. Um, As everybody knows, the the curtain is off the closet. As that's not a saying, is it? I don't think so. I just made that up. But (laughs) but basically, you know, we're like a week or two behind. Is what I'm trying to say. Um, And Jennifer is actually probably gearing to go on stage as we speak. As we speak, yeah. But um, hi, what's going on? Well, um, we had an amazing evening uh, last night at the opening night of Hades Town, and um, again, this is a couple weeks later. But uh, I'm still kind of like it'll still be running. Oh, in this air, <laughs> it will definitely still be running. If I have anything to do about it, uh, say about it. Um, oh my gosh, it was just such an incredible, special evening. I, you know, put in a plug to all of our listeners to to get tickets for Hades Town, uh, and maybe even try the mezzanine. Which is where we sat. Yes, we were in the mezzanine. You know I'm a bit of a snob about where I sit. Yes. And I sometimes get cranky when I look at my locations and they have (laughs) me in the mezzanine. But there are certain shows that really do, I think the term is a mezzanine show. They look great in the mezzanine. Hadestown looks great now everywhere in the theater, I've come to learn. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, the coolest thing from my experience with Hadestown is I went to see it in London last fall at the Royal National Theater. Um, and have now seen it on Broadway. And it's at the Walter Kerr Theater on Broadway, which is one of the smallest houses. It's, it's usually a playhouse. It's rarely used for musicals um, because of its intimacy and um, you know, the size of the stage and the relationship between um, the mezzanine and the stage. Um, and in London, it was at the National Theater um, in the Olivier, which is huge. It's, you know, if you've never been, it's sort of like the Vivian Beaumont at Lincoln Center. It's got a giant apron stage, it's very wide, no proscenium, very modern, very clean, very sleek. Um, and seeing the show, which is, it's a small show, you know, seven-member band, probably a cast around a dozen folks. Um, seeing the show at the National Theater in this giant house and on Broadway in this very intimate space completely transformed the experience. Same show. I mean, you know, they've same obviously... Same number? Same uh, principles, same number, you know, the same uh, principal cast. No, the dancers are different, right? The ensemble's all different and the fates are different. Um, but oh, the, the same, fates are different? The same, yeah, the same five principal characters. Uh, and obviously, you know, they tweak the show between London and New York. 
But the experience of seeing it, even in the mezzanine at the Walter Kerr, which is not a bad seat in that well, the, in that theater. First of all, the Kerr is a fabulous theater. It's gorgeous. And I know I say that about everything. But the mezzanine is very forward in that yes. theater. And yes. it's very steep. The rake yeah. is very... I mean, very you, you saw me falling up the stairs yeah. several times yeah. last night, which yeah. if anybody hasn't ever fallen up a set of stairs, it oh, does yeah. take work. It's, yeah. it's an no, effort it's... to fall up a set of stairs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was really, it was really, it's, it's a testament to the fact that you know you can have the best show, but if it's not in the right theater, you know, it 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 makes a difference. It does. Well, I'm excited to talk to our guest this week, um, our first director, our first director. We've gotten this far in the season without a without a. Well, Warren has directed, and Joel so, Gray has, and has directed. Joel Gray has directed, but they're both. Joel is known primarily as a as a performer right. and an actor, and uh, Warren's a choreographer. Warren's known We're known for his. So this is a gentleman by the name of Des Mackinoff. Des Mackinoff is the first true director by. Trade and yeah. quite a prolific right. director at that. Right. Yeah. So this is quite a treat. Yeah, I'm excited. And I'm a big fan of How to Succeed, of Jersey Boy. Oh, his body of work is yeah. Ain't it, too it proud. Sense. Yeah. Which yeah. I love on many levels. <laughs> so this is a treat. Yeah. Let's do it. Well, it's like he said, I'm an outdoor girl. Living it, living it up. Married to the king of the underworld. Living it up on top. Today, we are honored to welcome two-time Tony Award-winning director Des Mackinoff. With over three decades of smash hits, including The Who's Tommy, How to Succeed in Business, Jersey Boys, and this season's Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, Des has also served as artistic director of both the La Jolla Playhouse and Stratford Festival. Des, welcome to The Fabulous Invalid. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I just have to clear my conscience before we start. Please, oh, oh, you you did something to me. I did, and I think I owe you some money. Uh Uh-oh. When I first moved to New York in 1995, Uh I second acted How to Succeed so many times. Back in the day when you could could second act something. Um, And I sat in the balcony, well, not the balcony, but the way back of the mezzanine of of the Rogers Rogers Theater. Theater, right. Um, so no one would detect Aww. me, um, usually on a Tuesday or a Thursday night, which was always a good night for that. Um, so I, I feel like I owe you some lost royalties. Uh, th- listen, thank you so much. You, you, you know, I would have uh, definitely escorted you into your seat and <laughs> sat beside you. And yeah, I, I loved uh, getting to do that. And uh, they're great uh, teachers. You know, you do these old musicals or classical plays. And, you know, you learn so much from people that are long gone just by studying their texts. And one of the things that about that show that one discovers, uh, and it's the key to understanding uh, how to stage it, is that there is not a single sincere moment in that entire show. <laughs> and everybody has to seem like they're being truthful, but no one ever is. Everyone has an agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really works, you know, brilliantly. And if you if you t- start to slide into any kind of sentimentality, or you know, you make anybody even remotely sincere, it collapses like a house of cards. So as long as you continue to, you know, you know, keep that as your sort of mantra, then the show sort of leads you along. You know, uh, it was interesting. Uh, uh, Wayne Salanta, who I collaborated with. 
uh, is brilliant at doing comedic choreography, which is not something he was necessarily known for, but we did a production of Forum as well, which he was also spectacular at doing, you know, and uh, he would use steps from Follies, you know, for the four guys, and, <laughs> and I wish I could <laughs> demonstrate to Rest more assured, just you, thank you. very well. And, and um, so he had this great uh, comedic, uh, you know, vocabulary. He's very, very funny with movement, which is not so easy to do. Matthews, we did it in La Jolla before we remounted it at the Kennedy Center. And Matthew is not a real dancer, and I want to point out, nor am I. So I'm, this is, a, you know, I have every right to say that because I <laughs> say it with deep sympathy. And so I can stage numbers, but I always need, you know, the, the choreographer to do the steps. I, I love staging numbers, as I suppose is obvious. Um, but uh, the thing is, we when we realized that Matthew could do, you know, certain things, and certain things he did wonderfully well, uh, just in terms of his, you know, movement. He's like, you know, he has the, that Jack Benny timing and so on. And uh, so we, when we redid the, the, the production, Wayne very cleverly used Matthew's movement style as the basis for much of the choreography, particularly oh, wow. his choreography. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it worked a treat. So he he kind of looked like Fred Astaire up there, but he was just doing what he could do. And all of the other dancers, many of them whom were actually you know, quite brilliant, just fell into step with uh, with Matthew, so that show was was a blast, and you know, I had people like Jeff Blumenkrantz and you know J Jonathan Freeman, who is, you know, a, a, a brilliant, uh, a, a brilliant musical com knows far more about musical comedy than I ever hoped to. Gentlemen, a secretary is not a toy. No, my boy, not a toy to fondle and dandle and playfully handle in search of some puerile joy no a secretary is not definitely not a toy so moving forward a, a couple of years uh, sure. into the now, congratulations on the smash success of Ain't Too Proud. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's, it's really such a remarkable uh, evening in the theater. Mm. 
Um, and I wonder, um, there, are, there are people that, that may be looking at this as a bookend to Jersey Boys, and I think there's a, there's a misperception out there that you're a jukebox musical guy, which is not true. This well, is, I'm, so, this, I'm so pleased that you're saying that. Well, this is, this is, this is, this is the third one you've done, and That's how great. many other shows have you directed? A hundred? Two hundred? You know, number? between Jersey Boys and Ain't Too Proud, and I know this because my uh, assistant, Megan Dieterly, uh, volunteered to do this, uh, I've actually directed uh, 27 productions since Jersey Boys, and... Uh, only three of them have been so-called jukebox or catalog or biography, you know, musicals. Uh, Summer, the Donna Summer production, and uh, uh, Jersey Boys and Ain't Too Proud Inclusive, and that's it. I mean, in fact, I think I've done something like, if this is right, I think I've done seven classics, six by Shakespeare, and... uh, you know, two of those productions, by the way, starring the great Christopher Plummer, who's also a wonderful, uh, not only actor, but teacher and partner. So, yeah, actually, I think in all other genres, uh, you know, uh, classic musicals, uh, new plays, uh, and new musicals with new scores, I think I've done more productions than three in all of those categories. But you know what happens, and it's understandable, is if a show gets a lot of visibility or you're lucky enough to have it proliferate, and some of those other shows, by the way, I've done multiple times too, but nothing quite like, um, you know, uh, uh, Jersey Boys. So when, you know, when you see it, you know, on, you know, enough enough three sheets or whatever, uh, then, you know, obviously, you know, people assume that that's kind of what you do. And uh, I'm very proud of those shows. Please don't get me wrong. But uh, I, I, I think I would be, um, I couldn't just do one genre. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, my career is much too confused. And, uh, you know, I, I look at the next bright, shiny object. And I, I want, you know, the thing about being a director, not unlike, by the way, journalism, but it's sort of a dilettante's paradise. You know, because you really get to move into a new solar system without necessarily even being all that knowledgeable about it. I mean, you have to obviously study like crazy and come out the other end with a real working knowledge of the subject. But, you know, people allow you to, you know, drop back into, you know, 11th century Scotland without necessarily a, a degree in, in, in history. And uh, it's, which is, so you want to take full advantage of that. And, Keep leaping from you know lily pad to lily pad, and so that that's been you know the the way I've been uh, running my uh, so-called career. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that so-called career, as you just said, uh, I believe you started out wanting to be a playwright. Is that right? You know, I I still actually write, um, and um, I started off. The, I guess actually the very and this is it, you know enters even deeper into the. A, a, a land of my confusion, um, <laughs> but I really I started off writing songs, writing and composing music, and I started that when I was very very young. I was I was well very young. I mean I I, I wasn't like Mozart, <laughs> and I certainly couldn't compose like him either. But I started writing when I was about fourteen, and 
And I did a couple of high school musicals like everybody else. And, you know, uh, and then uh, uh, I, I actually did, you know, the Fosse number in, uh, in uh, Pajama Game, uh, Steam Heat, without dancing it, by the way. <laughs> Just sang there and, you know, sang it with black tights on. And um, so then, you know, hair came along. And I would have been about 17 and came to Toronto and there were, and I, I just, what hair kind of taught me is that there was music that was like the music I was listening to and playing, you know, I was in bands. Everybody, by the way, in the late 60s uh, was in a, a rock and roll band, everybody, or an R&B band. And um, you just had to be, there was no choice, you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, and uh, so I, I'd been doing that. And so when hair came along, I kind of applied my rather feeble knowledge of, of you know, musicals with the music that I loved, and I composed a show. So I started as with music and then got into writing. And at a certain point as a writer, I, I wanted to write plays. And so uh, even here in the city, going back to... Uh, my public theater days, I, I wrote plays. Joe Papp, you know, supported my my writing, and I came to him as a writer. I wrote a play called Leave It to Beaver is Dead with uh, <laughs> Diane Wiest and Mandy Patinkin oh, and gosh, Brent wow. Spiner, wonderful company. And Joe was uh, always fond of writers and suspicious of directors. <laughs> and so the, uh, it was great that I came to him as a writer because when I started directing for him, uh, he still would put his hand on my shoulder and treat me with great affection. Yeah. Uh, so I did back into directing, yeah. which is the way I think most of us arrive here. <laughs> so the public was where you started directing, or you would? I directed in Canada a little bit, and at, you know I, I realized at a certain point that directors seemed to be able to get projects on, <laughs> and with playwrights, you know, you had to kind of submit your work. And while it was a very vibrant scene in Toronto. Um, you know, and I don't even know if I'm being completely truthful with you because I think the, I think the bottom line is that writing involves a lot of solitude, and directing is social, mm. and it's simply until opening night, you know, more fun. You know, you're with people. You know, you you get to have conversations and get to know people. Whereas, you know, writing, you're, you, you spend so much time on your own, lonely, depressed, calling your therapist. So directing's just more stimulating. With Ain't Too Proud, when you were out of town with three cities before coming to New York, is that correct? Yeah, well, if you include Berkeley, I think it's actually even four, yes, yeah. That's mm -hmm. correct, yes, I'm forgetting about Berkeley. <laughs> so is there, when you have such a long out of time period is there some sort of is there more pressure or is it more relief because you know you have time to work on things I would again say there's no recipe you know I think every canvas you know requires a, a, a certain amount of time to paint and to you know and 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 uh, you know you, if you're going to put more coats on you need to wait for that paint to dry and and it can be you know, you can sometimes move very quickly and uh, you're working on impulses and sort of intuition uh, and, and that, can be, that can be really great. I think with, um, with Tom, the Who's Tommy a thing I, that I had the privilege of working with, 
Pete Townsend of the Who on, you know, we were actually working from liner notes, and I'm not exaggerating. Off the album? Off the album. That's how the script got created. And I was storyboarding, moving liner notes around, and then filling in, you know, uh, stage directions. And it's mainly sung through. And, you know, we would, he would help me rewrite a few of the lyrics here and there. I'd make suggestions. And we kept doing that. We were, that was probably February, and we were in. Uh, casting by April and in rehearsal in June and so that was just a few months and we went from La Jolla to New York uh, and making some changes in New York but but relatively minor you know we mainly got it and that was just you know I I was in a band when I was 17 and I I, I remember being with our roadie who guy I still know Dennis at his place. We were rehearsing in you know his basement, and uh, and listening to this album he just bought, and probably smoking something. <laughs> and so I think a lot of what was in my head for that production, obviously, was in Pete's blood, but a lot of what was in my head came from listening to that album as a seventeen-year-old. So working fast was important. It was a little bit. Jackson Pollock and Jackson Pollock by the way that's a that's a total misnomer so if anybody thinks that Jackson Pollock simply threw paint at a canvas they're incredibly naive because that came after you know a lot of techniques so I don't say that in a disparaging way but sometimes plugging into your gut and your your imagination there's there's something dreamlike about moving quickly Mm -hmm. and trusting and in other cases it's more cerebral I think with ain't too proud the time really was valuable. Uh, now, I think we were probably ready fairly early when we went to Toronto. I think we all felt, Dominique, Sergio, um, we, uh, Trujillo, we all felt like you know we pretty much muscled through a lot of the problem areas, and we probably, if if you know a theater had you know become available earlier, or we knew we had it. Maybe we would have uh, taken one step, you know, moved one step earlier. But it was a pretty good route, I've got to say. And, and we weren't idle. We continued to, you know, try to refine the piece. And, and uh, it's a very good, self-critical team. So there was plenty of work. Um, I wouldn't want to do it on every show. Um, you know, I'd only have two or three left in me if, if that were the case for one thing. So I think sometimes you, you, I think you have to be sensitive to the rhythm. You know, the theater exists, as you know, and as uh, uh, quoting Bob Dylan, in the eternal present. And so if, if you don't tap into the fact that on some level it's real life, then, you know, go make a movie. Right. You know, it's, it is real life. And so you have to, I think, be sensitive to, you know, as you do a play, you're aging, and so are the actors, you know. So if you wait too long, you know, Juliet's, you know, not, not uh, right for the part. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, speaking of that, um, in 1993, you said, um, what threatens the Broadway musical more than anything is they're difficult to develop. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if you, if you remember saying <laughs> I don't that. remember saying that on Charlie. A long time ago. Yeah. Did I really? Um, and I'm wondering, you know, given that we just had a discussion about, you know, yeah, the sure. ways that musicals develop, um, has that changed or do you still feel that way? You know, I think in some ways things have gotten a little bit better. In, in 
93, is that 92, did you say? I think it was 93. 93, okay, so we were, you know, we did a show at La Jolla called Big River in 85, and uh, I should also give ACT credit there because they they did a, a an earlier version of it that was perhaps more of a play with songs, and then it developed more into a musical Big River, um, the you know adaptation of Huckleberry Finn. I did it in high school. Did you really? Did. What did you play? <laughs> um, I was. Um, no, <laughs> the, the, river. the river. The river, right? No, I'm, of course now I'm forgetting the character name. Um, uh, the, the, one of the two. Tom, uh, Tom Sawyer, or, or no, there was, there was a oh, oh, you played the duke or the king? Uh, yes, yes, I was the duke. You played the duke, but that, and that, I think that's probably good casting. <laughs> I don't think you. I think you. I don't think you'd be right for the king. It's a yeah. great Rene Auberginois played that part on Broadway and was wonderful. She's got one big breast in the middle of her chest and an eye in the middle of her nose. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. In 1985, when we did that production, it was very unusual for those who worked in the halls of commerce and those who worked in the not-for-profit to partner. And there, there had reached this point, I think, where people in the commercial theater were waiting for product to be developed in the not-for-profit. And the not-for-profit theaters by that point, I, a lot of them had gone become maybe a little bit lazy, not all of them, by the way, some wonderful theaters, but some of them were waiting for Broadway product. Mm. So you were doing the play that had happened two seasons before on Broadway when the rights became available, and you were doing that for your community and so on. Okay, perfectly good, but as musicals became more and more expensive, they just weren't getting developed. You know, you couldn't go on the road. We did it with Ain't Too Proud, but it's unusual. You know, in the old days, they would go to Washington or they'd go to Baltimore or they'd go to New Haven and they'd, they'd try it out and they wouldn't lose their shirts, hopefully doing it. But that had become, that had become very expensive. And so... They, you know, they, there was this kind of thing started, and La Jolla Playhouse was part of uh, the inception of that system where musicals would be, uh, you know, kind of developed in partnership. And I think that's become quite successful. There are dangers. The not-for-profit can become hooked mm-hmm. on the enhancement funds and so instead of looking for the next brilliant play by Tony Kushner or someone else, 
uh, uh, Dominique Morisot. Mm -hmm. you're, you're looking for the next musical that comes with enhancement. Mm -hmm. And that's the path to mediocrity, of course. And then the, the, on the musical side, you can also, uh, uh, or on the commercial side, I think sometimes people want to kind of get in and bully the not-for-profits not as if it's already their show when they're actually working, hopefully, as guests in you know, the auspices of a not-for-profit organization. Mm. But if you keep all of those principles straight and clear, then they can be fruitful you know, relationships. And if you look at many of the shows that are on Broadway now, uh, they came through some sort of process, the public theater, you know, under Oscar Eustace, or through one of, or Christopher Ashley at La Jolla Playhouse, they, they kind of worked their way and developed, and they, they had the kind of runway that it, that it requires to get, you know, a B-52 bomber off the ground, and that's what a musical is, you know. Sure. So, so I, think, I think things are, not to be a Pollyanna, but <laughs> I, think there, I think there has been success, some real substantial success uh, in terms of developing musicals. But it seems like it takes longer now to develop a musical. It seems like a, the path for a musical is seven or eight years, sometimes longer. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, in the 80s and 90s and well, let's just stay with that. The golden age. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Well, but the time we're talking about when you first made this comment, I think that it was a much shorter path. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting how things may be more fruitful, but it's a much longer process. I think it, again, depends on the show. You know, again, Jersey Boys moved very quickly. Uh, we, once again, with Rick Ellis, who was your guest, uh, I was meeting with them and we were, I, I believe we were, the script was still being written. Uh, that was a very quirky process because I was artistic director. I could put the show in production before it was finished. Mm. I was so confident that we really had a tiger by the tail <laughs> that I, we announced the play and, and it was still being written. And we were, I just was with Clara Ziglarova, the designer for that, and we were literally designing that production. And they were coming over having not finished the writing. We had an outline. And so we were cross-pollinating like, you know, in a furious fashion. <laughs> and that, so that happened really fast. We were in rehearsal in August and so it was less than a year. Back in the golden age, and I wasn't being facetious, going back to the, you know, if you're 1952 and you're Frank Lesser, you know, at that time, first of all, I think the physical productions were less ambitious mm -hmm. because, you know, you know, you were dealing with, and they were some beautiful designs, but they were, everything was somewhat simpler. Lighting, obviously, you know, stage technology has developed so much uh, uh, since those days and is more complex and requires uh, more preparation. But also everybody lived within 10 blocks of, you know, mm. you know they all lived in the, in the same neighborhood. So if you wanted a copyist, they were across the street or your orchestrator lived next door and they were banging the piano at three in the morning <laughs> on the song you'd just written. Or, you know, it was a real, you know, industry. One of the things that I think has again, that's it's, it's working against what you're talking about, the, the fact that they're complicated, is just everything that's happened with communication. You know, now people can Skype. And so you don't necessarily have to all, you know, be 
in the same neighborhood to create together. You know, people have found ways, and you're doing it every day, I'm sure, too, you know, to communicate long distances. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are, uh, uh, I think it maybe ebbs and flows in terms of the speed, you know, of production. Well, and it's also a double-edged sword, right? Because what, what you're saying about the golden age, where it was a simpler time and the lighting and the sound and all of that was easier or, or it was less sophisticated, therefore sort of easier to produce. Nowadays, particularly in musical theater, mm-hmm. where everything is so tech, it, it's everything's so advanced, mm-hmm. there's also the issue that it's hard to make changes, right? Because if you have a short window in a rehearsal process or whatever that is, there's, you're limited, I assume, in how much time you have when, you, when, when everything is so complicated and... Mechanized. Uh, mechanized, yeah. right. So your, your hands m- must be tied a little bit as a director, and I would think that would be a little frustrating. You know, I, I, I actually, in honesty, don't find that. I, I think that um, there's still a fluidity in, in terms of you know, one's ability to make changes uh, and... Um, you know, I, I think if you plan properly, you know, for example, I like to generally spend no less than, no fewer than five weeks in the room. I, I prefer in previews to not have matinees so we can continue to make changes. So I, I actually, and you know, some of the things that take time, they were struggled with in 1953 too. If you're putting a new song in, you've got to restage it. Right. You got to do a new orchestration. So the first time you're performing that new song, it's a it's off a piano vocal, and the the audience I, you hope doesn't notice that suddenly the orchestra isn't playing and some some poor guy's or, or woman is banging out a piano, you know, uh, part uh, under a song. So I, I think they're always they've always been kind of hideously complicated. I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, our perception, you know, again, we, we, we do our work on the shifting sands of time. And so if you were to go back, I think, to 1953, and you were listening to a show that didn't have any amplification, and where you had to have the strings playing when, you know, somebody was singing their, their, their solo verse, and they probably were having to bellow at the top of their lungs to hit the back row of the balcony. Mm-hmm. And they were literally shouting the dialogue <laughs> across the stage. It would be a somewhat foreign experience because, you know, and film has affected us in television since those days. Hard to believe, but television was brand new in the early 50s. So, you know, we expect a certain kind of verisimilitude, a different kind of uh, performance style. You know, we've grown used to that. So it's interesting that some of these technologies, I think, are, are necessary in order to deliver an emotional experience to an audience. And this is a really boring uh, 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 you know, rant I'm on, so I'm, I'll cut it sh- sh- short uh, in, a, in a second. I'll, I'll cut it off. But you know, that's true of the wireless microphone. The wireless microphone was actually created for in, in, you know, at, at the Delacorte for Shakespeare in the Park. The wireless microphone was created for, for verse drama. For I, did Shakespeare. Not know that. I did not know that. And for a long time, we were limited to a certain number of frequencies. So you had to go to the shotgun mics, which are general mics along the front. You know what those are, of course. And so when you went to dialogue, you went to the shotguns. 
And so in, inevitably what happened is the book scene tended to recede. And so you tried to compensate for that. You would, if you had underscoring, you'd kick it up a step and you'd perk up the tempo. So you'd try to lift into the book scene. But by the 70s or so, you were seeing more and more sung through musicals, fewer and fewer book musicals. There was a big thing, oh, the book musical is dead. And I think that had everything to do with the wireless microphone. Oh, that's when amazing. the when we had enough wireless microphones that we could mic everybody, then book scenes had the same importance in a show in terms of audio as 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 music and sound, and you saw the book scene coming back to life. So while we're very suspicious of technology in the theater, you know, I guarantee when Shakespeare's company moved into the Blackfriars people were, were shouting at each other about natural light. Right. How can you possibly do these plays without natural light, without the sunshine? You know, how can you possibly use you know, candles or gasoline? You know? And, and every, every time something new comes along, people are shrieking. They're so upset. You know? What happened to the natural voice uh, you know, in the musicals? Well, you know, I don't know. If you heard the natural voice, you know, somebody again... Just like a, a, a you know a moose, just having to try to fill the entire house. Maybe it wouldn't be as as you know great as you think. And uh, on the other hand, I think technology can smother. And if you're if it's if it's not used properly, that it can interfere with the spoken word and with, you know, an emotional performance. So I think you also have to be very careful that one, you know, you don't render the actors to a, automatons. Right. And that's, that's your function. That's, that's all under your purview is to make sure that all of these things balance out. And I think it's also important to remember that, you know, I mean, this is true in everything, but, you know, as a director, you really do want the group to come up with the ideas, and you, you, as much as possible. And frankly, if they're not, you want to create the illusion that they are. You know, the, the trick with holding the gavel is never using it. Right. Mm. And that's particularly true of direction. And when you're a young director, and I speak for myself, I think you do tend to want to be more controlling. You know, you think, and it's human nature, that if you're not making the decisions or appearing to be in command, then somehow you're weak. And of course, the exact opposite is true. It's when you're, you know, when you're actually really listening to your colleagues and 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 mining their great ideas. That's when you're at your more, most powerful. Because isn't that the point of assembling your creative team? I mean, you you want to surround yourself with people that you trust and who's whose work you want to want to help foster and and all all make something great? Yes. That's isn't that's the key is what you're saying. Yeah. That's that's dead right and I honestly think that's 90% of the job. It's when you're inviting people to the table whether it's, you know, designers, whoever if you happen to come onto a project before the writer or writers then that's uh, critical to make sure you're you're inviting uh, you know the, the 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 best people to your tea party and people that you can really work with and absolutely true with actors i mean i don't care how good you think you are as an actor if you have someone who's either miscast or not capable of de- delivering a performance there's nothing you're going to be able to do i mean 
you, you know, you can enhance, you can coach, uh, you can even teach some in rehearsal, but it's mainly about the talent and the skill that an actor has. That's, that's really what it's about. And, and that's one of the reasons you, you end up taking more and more time casting. And Tara Rubin, I've been working with Tara, I won't tell you for how long, because she'll kill me. Uh, uh, she'll kill us both. Um, but, uh, you know, we go through a really arduous process. And uh, one of the things I love about Tara is that, uh, and I also have tried to do this myself, but she's really good at getting people to feel comfortable because when they walk into that space, you know, you want people to do their best work. So you want a warm, safe environment. And so with, with Tara, I'm, I'm always sure that I'm seeing the best an actor, you know, pretty much can do or I'm going to see them in, in a good light. Uh, because you, you're right, you, you do not want to make a mistake. You, you, I don't care how smart you think you are, you can't. You know, if you don't have the right, the right crew, the right team on the field, you're, you know, you're not going to win the Super Bowl. That's for sure. And you said a moment ago that you like to get out of the room after five weeks, no longer than five weeks. And what's the, I mean, I think this is an obvious question, but what's the value of getting into the theater? What, what changes? What, what happens that's not in the room? Yeah, I probably was uh, uh, rep- not representing that at, uh, uh, the way I, I meant or the way I intended. You know, I, I want as much. I'm 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 a, I'm a greedy little pig. I want I want as much rehearsal time as you're going to give me. And five weeks in the studio uh, is a, a generally considered a a, a, a a kind of a generous mm-hmm. amount of time. I mean, I've I've actually spent six weeks on occasion in the studio. That's pretty rare. And then you know, two weeks of tech. No, I'm I'm actually very happy to be in the studio for as, you know, uh, for, for, you know, within reason for as long as possible. I mean... Does it get stale after a while? Yeah, I, I, I really don't think so. I mean, you go through a period, particularly on a comedy, uh, as, as, as you know, <laughs> where you forget that it's funny. Right. And so, and, and one of the things, I've, I've, I've directed a couple of solo shows, one with the great Christopher Plummer, one with... Uh, Billy Crystal, and one of the things that's you know you think oh one man show cool you know I'm not no I don't have to stage any production numbers you know this is great there's not like massive amounts of people to share dramaturgical notes with you know this is going to be great and then you get in there and you realize that sometimes you're the only person in the room it's you <laughs> the actor the stage manager and you better laugh yeah. <laughs> because you know. It's like it's it's going to be like a, a you know a, you know and and fortunately with both those those two actors Billy Crystal is endlessly funny as is Chris so I I think it's about everybody in the room finding a rhythm together and um, you know I think that's the real key to you know to to working the clock. It's a good key to life, isn't it? <laughs> That's true, because I guess it's all going to run out. You know, I, I, uh, you know, I plan to live forever. So far, so good. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, that is that. That's true. It is, it is a key to life. Yeah, and and that's actually. I think you just said a mouthful because it's amazing how. I think when people get off in get off track in what we do, they lose their common sense, 
And there's a lot of pressure sometimes and a lot of judgment and sometimes mean-spiritedness, you know, and, and that gets us forgetting to apply, you know, the things that, that as you just said, that, that have to do with just real life, you know, treating people with respect and, you know, and uh, again, creating a, a world that's safe for them to work in and so on. Sometimes the simplest things are the hardest things to accomplish. Yeah, I think often that's the case. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. Well, speaking of finding a rhythm, uh, you very famously revived the La Jolla Playhouse in 1983 and served two different stints as artistic director, um, really putting that institution on the map as one of the leading uh, incubators for new work in America. Um, as you look back on that experience, um, and you reflect upon it. Um, what are you proudest of in terms of your work there? Gee, um, you know, first of all, you know way too much, and <laughs> uh, and I'm flattered to have you say that because you know, um, to to kind of uh, uh, that's a very good question. Let me see how I can evade it. Um, <laughs> you know, I I, I want to say that I think of all the things I've had the privilege to be involved in, you know, my role in. You know, La Jolla Playhouse is is my most important achievement, and so uh, and I take nothing away from Michael Greif and <laughs> Christopher Ashley have been great art, artistic directors. Anne Hamburger was there for uh, a, a time too, and but I feel like that really was you know happening to create a, a sandbox where others could create. You know their sandcastles. Mm. That's 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 a really, you know, that's something I'm very very you know proud of. And um, and of, of course they are sandcastles. So the wind comes along and the rain and they they do vanish into the mists of time. But I, I still I believe that La Jolla has become. This is a word that's often thought of negatively, but I think it's become an institution. And that word to me implies permanence. Mm. It's not about bureaucracy. It's right. something that will live on, uh, I hope, uh, for years to come. Uh, that's the thing that, by the way, for me was the key to understanding the temptations. And the reason I embraced the project, other than the fact that Otis Williams asked me to, and he is <laughs> six foot, you know, he's six foot five, and you're not going to say no to him <laughs> when he said, Otis says, I want you to do this place. Okay, yeah. I'm happy to do that. And, um, and I love him, by the way. But one of the things that I saw in him, in Otis, that I respect so much and admire so much is that he created an institution, mm -hmm. an, an institution that achieved change, you know, in America. And so that's why Ain't Too Proud is about, and Dominique saw similar things in the story. So that's one of the reasons that, that we've, I think, made the show about uh, entrances and exits. And you consistency. Know. I think that's something that your show illustrates beautifully. Um, and part of the success of, of The Temptations, the consistency of Otis Williams and his right. commitment to keeping it always going under any cost. And, and you, the show illustrates that beautifully. And, and I think that's the, 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 you know, the, 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 the uh, whole is larger than the sum of its parts, which is a major theme. You know, people can come and go, but it's, it's, it's the, that entity, that institution that's right. ultimately important. And I think that is how I, I 
try to look at La Jolla, yeah. that it's not about a single production. It's about a body of work, and it's not about a single artist. It's about a group of artists. And, you know, um, uh, this may be a little esoteric, but we did The Seagull back in 1985, and it was really a, a revelation for me. I, I directed the, the production, and The Seagull is lots of things. Obviously, an incredible achievement, and maybe in some ways the first kind of modern play. But at its the at its at, at the at the at the pit of its soul, it's a it's a microcosm for an art scene. And you have all of these characters whose souls have been shaped by a different genre of art. And they all fall in love with each other, but they can't communicate because they come from different genres. You know, Constantine is a symbolist. You know, Nina is is a an, an actress of of wants to be an actress of tragedy. You know, uh, Trigorn's a, sh- a certain kind of short story writer. Arcadian is a melodramatic actress of a particular period. They all, and it's not whether they're good artists or bad artists. It's, it's about the fact that they, they've had their lives so deeply affected by a genre. And it's like, you know, what happens if a punk rocker falls in love with somebody who comes from big band? You know, they have a really hard time communicating. <laughs> and that was really a key, for, key production for the playoffs. And also in terms of, of our understanding and acceptance of the eclecticism of the American theater, that we wanted that place to be about good not about a particular genre. We wanted it to be about good work. And so we welcomed Bill Irwin, and Sondheim was there very early on, and artists that came from whole, you know, Amanda Plummer and, you know, Emily Mann, and people that came from very different uh, aesthetic, you know, viewpoints. And I'm very proud of that, that that La Jolla seems as an, you know, institution to be capable of supporting a whole host of artists that may have completely contrasting styles. But to me, that's the joy and achievement of the American theater. Well, on that note, <laughs> I have to say thank you. There's nothing else yeah. to say. <laughs> you summed it up, but thank you for coming down. I mean, I would, I would, I, I think I can now say you're an institution. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. meant as, and taken as a compliment. Exactly. exactly. Um, we always do have one last question. We do. Yes. Great. I think you answered it, but go ahead and ask it. Well, yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, what is what is the show or experience that you had early on in your life that sort of hooked you on the theater? Oh my heavens, that, that, that's a really tough one. You know, there was a small theater uh, in Toronto uh, of, and it was a very young uh, theater scene. And I had decided, you know, I'd, I'd written a, a couple of musicals by that point and I was starting to write plays, but it was a theater called uh, Toronto Free Theater. And they did a number of wonderful plays and they would have one of the, the director would direct the writer's work and then the next play the writer would be directing the director's writing and you know, it was just this fantastic company and one of the plays they did was a kind of an Orton-esque farce called The End and I, I just remember thinking, you know, what a spectacular 
group of, of you know, artists. And I got commissioned by that theater, not, and I was only 20 <laughs> shortly after that. And that was a real uh, life changer, you know, is, was just seeing that play and then trying to work with those people. That, that, that changed, you know, uh, everything for me. And, and I still think about that, that group, you know, and I'm inspired by them. Wonderful. Well, I think it's fair to say we're both inspired by you. Oh, thank you so much for coming down and chatting with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg for your sympathy, I don't mind because you mean that much to me. Ain't too proud of Rob here with You May Be Wondering. We just finished our conversation with Des Mackinoff, who in addition to his contributions to the theater as director and producer, served as artistic director of two major institutions, La Jolla Playhouse in California, as we talked about, and the Stratford Festival in Southern Ontario. While The Fabulous Invalid refers to Broadway, a secondary mission of this podcast, as we give a 360-degree view of the industry, is to highlight other theaters across America as well, from Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia, to the Curran Theater in San Francisco. After all, great theater is happening everywhere, not just in New York and London. If you've never personally been, you've still likely heard of La Jolla Playhouse, and you may be wondering about this celebrated regional outpost that bills itself as a place where artists and audiences come together to create what's new and next in American theater. Founded in 1947 by actors Gregory Peck, Dorothy McGuire, and Mel Ferrer, La Jolla Playhouse was created as a summer stock retreat for Hollywood luminaries to flex their stage acting muscles, so many actors working in Los Angeles longed to get back on a legitimate stage, which was strangely absent in the City of Angels. So Gregory Peck looked a little over 100 miles south to his hometown of La Jolla to create an outlet for their desire. With some seed money from producer David Selznick, the troupe was born. In its original incarnation, greats like Vivian Vance, Groucho Marx, Ginger Rogers, Vincent Price, Eartha Kitt, and Eve Arden, among others, all made appearances in La Jolla's summer productions. After over a decade of success, the company began to decline, though, and shuddered after Zsa Gabor's infamous performance in Blythe Spirit in 1964. Dreams of a new permanent theater, though, never died, despite an extended hiatus until 1982. That's when Des Makinov stepped in to revive the company at its new home on the campus of UC San Diego in 1983, fulfilling the vision that Gregory Peck had imagined some 25 years prior of transitioning his little summer stock troupe into a serious, permanent theatrical powerhouse on the West Coast. Under Des's leadership from 1983 to 1994, and again from 2001 to 2007, La Jolla became just that, fast emerging as a preeminent incubator for new and exciting work, developing dozens of plays and musicals, among them Big River, The Who's Tommy, and Jersey Boys, all directed by Des and all transferring to Broadway for successful runs. In 1993, after only 10 years in its reconstituted form, La Jolla was awarded the prestigious Tony Award for Outstanding Regional Theater. Director Christopher Ashley took over when Des left in 2007, continuing his tradition of originating new work, including the hit musicals Memphis and Come From Away. Indeed, to date, La Jolla has mounted 101 world premieres, commissioned 52 new works, and sent 32 productions to Broadway, which have collectively earned a total 38 Tony Awards. In the absence of a national theater or any serious federal support for the arts, regional theaters in America have become the places where plays and musicals are given the space and the resources that they need to develop. 
and La Jolla is an important star in that constellation. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.